You're listening to Our American Stories, and this is Lee Habib. We take you now to a place of myth, a place of legend, the state Mississippi, the place, the crossroads. Our American Stories executive producer Jesse Edwards takes us on a quest to find the place where, according to legend, Robert Johnson sold his soul to the devil. The Crossroads. Many of us know the story of a young black man who went down to the crossroads at midnight looking to make a deal with the devil so he could play the blues guitar. Legend has it that it all went down at the intersection of old U.S. Highway 61 and 49 in Clarksdale, Mississippi. It's a busy intersection. With some amazing food at Abe's Barbecue right there on the corner. If you're ever there, you have to try some tamales and the Big Abe Barbecue pork sandwich. It's to die for. And you can see the Crossroads Monument right out of the window. Three big blue guitars on a pole with a sign underneath that say, The Crossroads. I'm at the crossroads in Clarksdale. So you hear a lot of traffic right under the big guitar signs. Could this be the real crossroads? If you ask that question around here, you'll get a lot of different answers. Some people insist it's in Clarksdale. Others say it's down the road closer to the Mississippi River in Rosedale at the intersection of Highway 8 and Highway 1. I'm here at the intersection of Highway 8 and Highway 1 in Rosedale, Mississippi. There's a sign that reads, Rosedale was immortalized in Robert Johnson's 1937 recording, Traveling Riverside Blues. In 1968, Eric Clapton's group Cream incorporated the verse, Going Down to Rosedale, in their version of Johnson's Crossroad Blues. Although Johnson's original 1936 version of this song did not mention Rosedale, the town has since been associated of a blues man selling his soul to the devil at the crossroads. When I'm going down to Rosedale, But some people, especially the old-timers, say their original crossroads is just south of a historic plantation a few miles east of Cleveland, Mississippi. The Dockery Plantation. You better hush, 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 hush. Somebody's calling my name. I'm here at the Dockery Plantation, established by Will Dockery in 1895 and operated from 1937 to 1982 by Joe Rice Dockery. 
It included a post office, a commissary, and a cotton gin. The plantation once employed Charlie Patton, legendary blues musician who inspired such greats as Muddy Waters, Robert Johnson, B.B. King, and Elvis Presley. There's a sign here that asks, is this the birthplace of the blues? It reads, the precise origins of the blues are lost to time, but one of the primal centers for the music in Mississippi was Dockery Farms. For nearly three decades, the plantation was the home of Charlie Patton, the most important Delta blues musician. Patton himself learned from fellow Dockery resident Henry Sloan and influenced many other musicians who came here, including Howlin' Wolf, Willie Brown, Tommy Johnson, and Robert Pop Staples. I had a chance to meet up with the executive director of the Dockery Plantation Foundation, William Lester. This is the, uh, the birthplace of the blues? Well, you know, B.B. King came here in 1973 and stood in front of the seed house and said if you had to pick one spot, he said, you might as well say it all started right here. And what I think he meant was, uh, obviously he's dead and we can't ask him anymore, but what I think he meant was uh, that probably no one knows where the first blues note was written or the first blues song, or the first blues lick. But so much of the education of the blues went on here at Dockery because Charlie Patton came here as a child. His mother and father, Annie and Bill Patton, brought him here because Mr. Dockery paid the highest wages in the Delta. He paid 50 cents a day uh, when everybody else was paying 40 cents a day. That doesn't sound much to us, but that meant on Friday, Saturday, you got paid. You got an extra day's pay. Here's B.B. King who introduces us to the music of Charlie Patton. In my day, we learned the blues songs from the records and the radio. But back then, blues musicians learned from each other. Willie Brown played here, Sunhouse played here, and here at Dockers, another blues singer was working the fields by day and playing his music by night. He was Charlie Patton, called the father of the Delta Blues. You city, you pretty, you can hide it on the wall. A lot of Mississippi blues men came through Dockery Plantation, and they all came to hear Charlie Patton play the guitar. Here's more from our conversation with William Lester, the executive director of the Dockery Plantation Foundation. Charlie learned how to play the guitar from uh, Henry Sloan. Henry Sloan, a few years later, got on the train and went to Chicago and never came back again. And so Charlie picked up from there and began to play all over the Delta and was one of the earliest recorded blues singers. But look who came here to play with Charlie. Uh, Howlin' Wolf was a child here. Uh, Charlie taught him how to play the guitar here. Pop Staples of the famous Staples singers from Chicago was a child here. Charlie taught him everything he needed to know about being Pop Staples, he claims. He told Robert Palmer that in, uh, when Robert wrote the book Deep Blues in 1950, he interviewed Howlin' Wolf, he interviewed Pops, he interviewed all of them that were still alive. And they all said that they came here to play with Charlie to learn the different um, licks and see what was new. This is Our American Stories, and I'm Lee Habib. You're listening to Jesse Edwards and his quest to find the legendary crossroads in the Mississippi Delta. When we come back, we'll hear more about Dockery Plantation and how it became the center of the universe for bluesmen back in the day.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and this is a special best of. We look back every once in a while into our files. You ask for it, we want to bring it back. These are shortened versions of some of our longer and most popular segments, and about a quarter of them are music segments. You love them, we love to do them, and we love music. And we dig deep and dive deep into the musical lives of every kind of music. The people who write it, the people who record it. You just heard the sound of music. We love Broadway. And we love the blues. And there's no better British blues band ever than the Rolling Stones. And I don't think that's just my humble opinion. I think that's pretty much an established fact. And I know who wants to hear that. But I think that's the case. And we love digging into songs. How they got made. What happened in a studio? What block were we trying to overcome? The musicians. We learned about Pink Floyd. We'll do that soon. But this particular song, Gimme Shelter, boy, we learned something about how this song got made. Take a listen. It's time now to get into our, well, our musical segment here. We teased you a little bit with this, uh, this tidbit. And you know this lick. By the way, think about Martin Scorsese. You know, if you love Martin Scorsese's movies... This lick plays a prominent part in one of my favorite scenes in Goodfellas. Watching Robert De Niro take that real long take on a cigarette as he's sizing up a room in a bar where he knows some bad things are about to happen, or in Casino, or in The Departed. That's how good this song is. Mm. Marty Scorsese features it in three movies. Well, the song was recorded in 1969. It turns out the Stones were having a real hard time. They were stuck back and forth from London to L.A. And there was something missing in this song, and Mick needed something. And, well, the help, the intervention, the resuscitation, well, it came from a lady who no one knows, but hers is the haunting voice in this song. Her name is Mary Clayton. Let's hear from her and the boys in the band about this remarkable song. Very late at night, and I was very, you know, a little pregnant. Had curlers and the whole thing in my head, getting ready to go to bed. And we got a call, Mary. There's a group of guys in town called Rolling, the Rolling Somebodies, and they're from England, and they need somebody that will sing with them. They picked me up with silk pajamas on, a mink coat, and a Chanel scarf on my head. We said it would be wonderful if a woman sang this part about that I'd written about rape, murder, and all this. It was in the middle of the night, and and then we thought well, we would love to have a woman sing this part. I didn't know her, and from Adam. Then she turned up in a curler. She was in bed. She got out of bed, and you know it was a kind of raunchy part to sing. I said, "What? Rape, murder? It's just a shot away." I started to sing, Oh, children, let's shout away, let's shout away, with Mick. She sings the lyrics right along me, and with a lot of personality, which is what was needed. What I liked was that she could sing. She was able to be merry. She didn't have to bring it down. I said, you want to do another one? I said, sure, I'll do another one. I mean, she just did it, like, a couple of times, you know. So I said to myself, mm-hmm, 
I'm going to do another one. I'm going to blow them out of this room. <laughs> I went in again, and I did that pass on the, uh, the part that says, uh, Ray Murdoch, just a shot away. So I had to go up another octave. things that sort of two in the morning and then you come in the next day and you go, oh, that's good. Yeah. I don't hear a hand clap. <laughs> and there you have it. And we were just commenting that we could listen to that every day. That's about as raw and pure a voice as you can hear. And you just heard how a problem got solved for the Rolling Stones. A total stranger walked into the studio in the middle of the night curl is in their inner hair and just knocked it out of the park and now we want to segue to some of the other kind of stories we tell because we love to tell stories of redemption stories of love and people of faith who do remarkable things and move people who aren't of faith or of faith to repeat those things and we love talking about uh, what people do in terms of adopting people and we spent a month during adoption month telling stories about people who love on someone else and actually take them into their homes. And you all know Sandra Bullock. She played Leanne Tui from The Blind Side, that great Christian couple in Memphis that took in a young boy off the streets, and that boy, Michael Orr, became an NFL football player. And here, though, is how Sandra Bullock's life got impacted from playing that part. There was a movie and a book, The Blind Side, which I think did more for adoption than almost any single piece of art or story in the last few decades. And there's a great scene, if you remember, in The Blind Side where Sandra Bullock is describing the person who played Leanne Tui, the real-life person in that story. Sandra Bullock is talking to young Michael Orr about the fact that the family was thinking of adopting him. And here's that scene. Well, Leanne and I, we, well, we'd like to become your legal guardians. What's that mean? What it means is, is that we want to know if you would like to become part of this family. Kind of thought I already was. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of thought I already was. And by the way, thousands upon thousands of families, the two weeks later reported had adopted because of seeing that movie. And that's the power of storytelling, and that's why we love to tell stories. You know, we had played that first Sandra Bullock clip of her as an actress. And uh, interestingly enough, she was on the Today Show not long ago, and she was with Matt Lauer. And she discussed the adoption story, well, an adoption story all of her own. You finalized your adoption. I did, I did. And Louis from New Orleans. He's from New Orleans. So you I mean, Cajun cookie. You are forever now hitched to this. City. I am. How lucky am I? What was it like the fi- when you finalized that? Mm-hmm. Been, it's a long process. Long, long process. It's, it's sterile as the room seemed. It felt so rich. 
it felt like it was time, you know, and, and the process is the way that the process is for very, very good reasons. And I did not circumvent. I wanted to do everything exactly the same way everyone else did. It was nice to have someone say, I think you're a fit parent, which is what I heard, which was like, <laughs> <laughs> the water works again, but you can't celebrate too long. You get at home and change diapers oh, and get, feed. And oh, things yeah. Like oh, that, that. Kids don't care about celebrations. He, he, no, he does. He does. He at likes eight to months ce- old. Oh, he likes to celebrate. <laughs> he likes to dance and celebrate. He's um. He's. Uh, you know what? I got blessed. I got lucky, and he's extraordinary. The nicest thing I read um, that you said recently. You said um, even throughout the whole process, I didn't care what he would look like mm-hmm. or whether it would be a he or a she. Mm-hmm. What color? Anything what, about yeah. it? No. I just had faith that they were going to put me together with the right child. Mm-hmm. Where'd that faith come from? It doesn't always happen that way. I don't know. I don't know. You know, everything works out the way the universe wants it to work out. And and we we always said that that it didn't matter where the child came from. The child that needed us in the home is the child that's going to be placed. I was saying to a girlfriend of mine, no one understands the shift in priorities about having a a child in your life that you have you are responsible for until you have a child in your life. It naturally shifts. It just shifted the first day I met him, and it was like he'd been there the whole time, yet everything was different. And now, Everything was different for Sandra. Everything was different for this, this child. And so if you're thinking about it, if you're on the fence, if you've never thought it before, we're going to encourage folks, you got an empty room in the house, adopt a child. And this is Lee Habib. That was the story we told of Sandra Bullock. Give me shelter. The sound of music. This is what we do. A best-of version of Our American Stories. Much more when we come back after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now we want to dig into a couple of great Florida stories. Our first is about an environmental specialist investigating, well, let's just say, a little bit too much of the nanny state. Here's we all we want government of the people, by the people, and for the people, but sometimes government just gets in your way. That's why we have this segment. It's our nanny state of the week. Hardly anything screams summer in America more than the smell of meat roasting on an open grill, but the smell of barbecue has landed one Florida man in trouble with local authorities who reportedly sent an environmental specialist to inspect his grill. The specialist then ordered him to contain the smell of barbecue to his own property. How's he supposed to do that? Well, that's a good question. As The Week magazine suggested, if you want a barbecue in Pinellas County, Florida, you better be endowed with the powers of Aeolus. He's the Greek god of the winds, for those of you that weren't classical majors. 
The interaction between a group of men and Joe Graham, the Pinellas County environmental specialist, was filmed and has since gone viral on the Internet. In the video, Graham somehow manages to keep a straight face while explaining the rules. He says that if he can smell the barbecue, even just a step across the property line, then that's just not allowed. One of the men in the video asks incredulously how they're supposed to comply with the order to keep the smell from wafting on the Florida breeze. He asks if they're supposed to be able to control the smoke and the wind and the direction that it's blowing and says that they've been barbecuing at that house for years without any sort of incident. The Pinellas County website explains that background grills and barbecues, including commercial barbecues, can be reported to the county for causing a nuisance odor. If a significant number of complaints are made, an inspector can be asked to witness the problem and may issue an official warning letter, which is capitalized on the county website so you know they're being serious. That seems to be exactly what happened here. Graham in the video tells the two men that a neighbor has made a series of complaints about their grill. Whether this neighbor tried to talk to them before involving the nanny skills and brute force of the state is unknown. The whole issue revolves around so-called nuisance laws, these vague, intrusive laws that often give government officials carte blanche to crush property rights and generally engage in nanny state activity. The video of the incident posted to Facebook can be viewed at watchdog.org. Just a warning, there's a bit of strong language on there, most of which seems appropriate in context. So congratulations, Pinellas County environmental officials. You've managed to ruin an American summertime institution. And for that, you are our nanny state of the week. And that is reporter Eric Bohm of watchdog.org. And we love to dig around the web and find the best stuff we can and share a little bit about America with you and some of the American stories that aren't so pleasant. And now we shift to a Florida story and a story of a man that many of you may have come to know in Ken Burns' baseball series on PBS, Buck O'Neill. Well, take a listen to this story. We want to talk a little bit about the life of Buck O'Neill. He was the first baseman and manager in the Negro American League, mostly with the Kansas City Monarchs. After his playing days, he worked as a scout and became the first African-American coach in Major League Baseball. A real groundbreaker. He had a career batting average in the Negro League at 288. He had a couple of years where he batted 350. Wow. That's pretty crazy. He took a little stint off to do a little thing called fighting the war, World War II, two years in the U.S. Navy. Comes back, manages the Monarchs in the Negro League, but as the Negro League declines, the Chicago Cubs give the man a shot. So Branch Rickey, as we learned, was a groundbreaker hiring Jackie Robinson over at the Dodgers back when they were in New York. And we, we're going to learn today that, well, the Chicago Cubs gave Buck O'Neill the front office. And Buck did some pretty extraordinary things, and I think Chicago fans would agree that the most extraordinary thing he did was sign Mr. Cubs himself, the great Ernie Banks. So what we wanted to do today is bring you Buck in his own words. Because what a man and what a life. And so we wanted to start, well, in the beginning. Here's Buck talking about his birthplace and his family. I was born in a little town, a little fishing village, Caribel, Florida. My father was a sawmiller. Mm-hmm. And uh, he built a home. He built a home. My grandmother built a home. 
all directly in Caribbean, Florida. And this is where I was born. My sister was born, Fanny, who was two years older than me. My brother, five years younger than me. And uh, that in Sarasota, I mean in Caribbean, Florida. And we didn't stay there very long because we moved. Uh, the, the South Florida was started booming. And my grandmother was a great cook. My grandmother was the was the chef at a, a tourist resort there, a little kind called Lenark, Lenark, Florida. And my mother was a great cook. Mm -hmm. So what? Uh, so they moved out of uh, Caribbean, moved to Sarasota. That's where the boom was. My mother started cooking for John Ringland. That's the circus. The circus people. She cooked for John Ringland. And uh, my daddy said, if you that good, I'm going to put you up a restaurant. So he built a restaurant uh -huh, for them, for, for my mother. And they called it Luella's. That my mother's name was Luella. So they had a restaurant, black restaurant there in Sarasota, Florida. So there you have it, living in the segregated South, a mother and a father, and entrepreneurs at that, and doers. What a voice to listen to as we listen to so many of the voices today. Here's Buck on his father and the subject of prejudice. See, my daddy in the sawmill, my daddy ran the carriage, which was, that wasn't a black man's job. Usually the white man ran the carriage. But my daddy ran the carriage, and as I said, my daddy was the was the, the first man I knew that wasn't prejudiced. Mm -hmm. See, because a lot of people, when you say prejudice, you think about white. Black people can be prejudiced too. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, but no, no, he wasn't, and uh, he was always. Uh, they call him John, uh huh, and they call him John, but he called Mister Ringling John too. He called Mr. Ringley John, too. Hey, how about that? Black people can be prejudiced, too. Here he is on his father and his early love of this sport, baseball. My father was a baseball player. He played with the local team, with the sawmill team, and I would go along as the bat boy. Always had good hands. I could catch the ball. And, and the uh, what they do on the sideline, the men would throw me the ball, and I'd catch it. You know, I was a ham. And I would just show out catching the ball. They'd show me, throw me nickels and dimes. I, oh man, I really showed out. And that got me started uh, to to lacking baseball, watching my father play baseball. And then uh, my baseball started well in, in, in Sarasota, Booker Grammar School. We had a baseball team, and uh, on the, the the diamond was right on the school ground. See, so after school we would practice. And the men, when they got off, they'd practice on this same ground. So they'd get there sometime before we would finish practicing. So they, they would see us play. Yep, they would see us play. And pretty soon he was playing with those older guys. And pretty soon he took one of those older guys' jobs at first base at the age of 12. And that was part one. And we're going to be continuing with part two. This voice, Buck O'Neill's, his story growing up in the segregated South. Look, it was tough. It was wrong. But listen to his voice. Listen to how he coped. Listen to how his family triumphed. More from Buck O'Neill 
right after these messages on our special the Our American Stories Best Of Live when we come back. And this is Our American Stories. And we're telling the story of Buck O'Neill in our best of Our American Stories, which we do time to time. We go back in the files and we give you a live best of show. And we're going to take you back now to this interview with Buck O'Neill, the man you may have known from the remarkable Ken Burns series, Baseball. So now we hear about O'Neill's life growing up in a segregated place, the segregated South. It was segregated, but like I said, we couldn't eat at the restaurant downtown. That's why my daddy put my mama in a restaurant, a black restaurant. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the thing about it is, sweetheart, we owned so many more things then than we do now. We didn't, you understand what I'm trying to say to you? Yeah, see the man is right down the street there, Streets Hotel. Man on the Streets Hotel was black. Man had the restaurant Streets Hotel was black. The man in the barbershop was black. The man at the bar was black. You understand? They own these things. We own so many things that we don't own own anymore. Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. Howard Theater, the Howard University. This was ours. What are you talking about? New York City, I knew Harlem, baby. When Harlem was Harlem. You understand what I mean? We stayed at the small hotel. Mr. Small was black. Who owned the small hotel? You understand? Yeah. We own so many things that we don't own anymore, Buck O'Neill said. With abulence and a touch of sadness. Well, here he is talking about his segregated school when he was a kid and this remarkable black principal. I went to Booker Grammar School. Mrs. Booker was the principal there. Mrs. Booker, six feet tall, black and pretty. I had a crush on Miss Booker. But let me tell you what. Mrs. Booker was probably the most educated person in Sarasota. See, a white teacher would go, Florida, get a BS and come on back and teach school. Mrs. Booker, Spellman, you know what I mean? After Spellman, 
that you know, and and Atlanta, you wouldn't take her for a Masters, Columbia. You understand? See, she get a Masters in Columbia. I doubt if any white teacher in Sarasota had a Masters degree. Mrs. Booker. Oh man, heavy. <laughs> Mrs. Booker. And Mrs. Booker said, "Tell your children." This eighth grade education is not enough. I'm going to teach night school. I'm going to teach summer school. I took up on that. Listen to the way he talks about that woman, that Spellman grad and that Columbia grad, the pride in his voice, no victimhood in Buck O'Neill. Here's O'Neill on what it takes to be a leader. First, you got to know who you're leading. Mm-hmm. And you've got to instill in the people that you're leading, you've got to live in a way that they want to follow. Mm-hmm. And you're going to lead them to the best thing for you. And no two people alike. So in leadership, you got to deal with him. you got to deal with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. you got to deal with this this fella that maybe an imbecile. Then you're going to deal with the Harvard student. Mm-hmm. You know how to do this. This is, what, this is great leadership. Is is knowing first you got to know people and get to know people. Get to know people. Get to know people, said Buck. Well, in 2006... And he missed by only a few votes getting into the Hall of Fame. But he gave the opening remarks in the 2006 Baseball Hall of Fame. And, well, Buck, as he always did, just stole the show. Here's how he started things. This is outstanding. I've been a lot of places. I've done a lot of things that I really like doing. I hit the home run. I hit the Grand Slam home run. I hit for the cycle. I've had a hole in one in golf. I've done a lot of things I like doing. I shook hands with President Truman. Yeah. So, oh, man. I shook all oh, with the other president, and I am the hug his wife, Hillary. So I've done a lot of things I like doing, but I'd rather be right here right now representing these people that helped build the bridge across the chasm of prejudice, not just the ones like Charlie Pride and me that laid across them. Yeah, this is quite an honor for me. Well, before he got to honoring those other men who were inducted into the Hall of Fame that day, Buck talked a little about hate and prejudice and how he dealt with both in his life. They always say to me, Buck, I know you hate people for what they did to you or what they did to your folks. I said, no, man, I, I never learned to hate. I hate cancer. Cancer killed my mother. My wife died 10 years ago of cancer. I'm single, ladies. <laughs> A good friend of mine, I hate AIDS. A good friend of mine died of AIDS three months ago. I hate AIDS. But I can't hate a human being. Because my God 
never made anything ugly. Now you can be ugly if you want a boy, but God didn't make you that way. Uh-uh. So I want you to light this valley up this afternoon. Martin said agape is understanding, creative, a redemptive goodwill toward all men. Agape is an overflowing love which seeks nothing in return. And when you reach love on this level, you love all men. Not because you like them, not because their ways appeal to you, but you love them because God loved them. And I love Jehovah my God with all my heart, with all my soul, and I love every one of you as I love myself. Well, this is how Buck O'Neill ended things in 2006. Now, I want you to do something for me. I'm thinking to get off this stage now. I think I've done my six minutes. But I want you to do something for me. I want you to hold hands. Whoever's next to you, hold a hand. Come on, you Hall of Famers. Hold hands. All you people out there, hold hands. Everybody hooked up? Everybody hooked up? Well, and I tell you what, see, I know my brothers up here, my brothers over there, I see some black brothers of mine and sisters out there, I know they can sing. Can you white folks sing? I want you to sing after me. The greatest thing, come on everybody, the greatest thing. And all of my life is loving you. The greatest thing and all of my life is loving you. The greatest thing and all of my life is loving you. The greatest thing and all of my life is loving you. Thank you, folks. Thank you, folks. Thank you, folks. Thank you, folks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now sit down. Now sit down. I could talk to you 10 minutes longer, but I got to go to the bathroom. What a spirit. What a life. This half hour brought to you by Hillsdale College, whose sponsors are this day in histories. And folks, as we talk about race in this country, always remember the voice, the spirit of Buck O'Neill. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And there you have it, folks. What a voice. And only here on Our American Stories are you going to hear a story like that. And by the way, we did this story on the day Buck O'Neill was born. This was one of our This Day in Histories, which always is brought to you and to us by Hillsdale College. And we'll do Gettysburg. We'll do the Wright Brothers. We'll do Wilt Chamberlain's 100 Points. We mix it up. History doesn't always have to be some politician or some war. Sometimes it's a businessman. Sometimes it's Johnny Carson. Let me tell you, he had a big impact on a lot of people's lives, Johnny Carson. I can't tell you how many comics careers were launched. So many of the things we care about and treasure uh, came from that show, still. 
And so this is Our American Stories, and you can catch all of this, all of it in its full, full form at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. You wanna spank him for? He didn't drop no apple core, but I don't have grandma anymore. If I get to heaven, I'll look for grandma And this is Our American Stories. And we often wonder why we are the way we are. I think as a country, we wonder that. I think as an individual, all of us think, who am I? How did I get this way? Who are we? How did we get this way? We ask everyone who ever joins us, where were you born? We don't care if you're a CEO, a great entertainer, a writer, a caller. Uh, it's always interesting to us, where, where, where were you born? Who were your parents? Who were their parents? Where were they from? It's fascinating, ancestry, interesting and fascinating. Our guest today has looked to his family history to figure out these questions. Jonathan Puckett spoke with the Wall Street Journal in an article titled Searching Family History, Finding a New Future. He joins us to talk about his research in his own family history and how that helped him better understand himself. Thanks for joining us, Jonathan. Hi, it's great to be here. I'm going to start off just tonight. I do this sometimes. I'm going to start off with the piece because it, the piece drew me into you, so I want to draw the audience in as well. And again, the title is Searching Family History, Finding a New Future. It was in the Wall Street Journal uh, not too long ago. Many of us wonder why we are the way we are and look to our family history for clues. What we find can change our lives, as Jonathan Puckett discovered. When he was a child, Mr. Puckett wasn't quite sure where he belonged. What does that mean? Let's start right there. What what were you worried about or wondering about? Why didn't you think, or why were you wondering about belonging? Okay. Well, um, my family background, uh, well, my immediate family, uh, the family that I knew prior to uh, beginning my research, um, they didn't really have uh, too much education. I grew up in in a rural Mississippi area, and uh, I was an honor roll student, straight A's, all, all of this sort of thing. And I uh, read immensely uh, British history, British literature, uh, continues to fascinate me. So I felt uh, a little uh, out of place in my immediate family. Uh, and that's what provoked me to begin um, branching out and uh, finding new, so to speak, new family members uh, who shared my interest. Now, you're thinking to yourself, I live in this place with these people, and I love them, and it's a fine place, but but I'm, right. so, I'm different. And why am I the way I am? And why British literary history, by the way, I, came, I grew up in Dumont, New Jersey, working-class town. British literary history fascinated me. So did Russian literature. And as a kid, I'm reading Keats and Coleridge, and Walt Whitman is, yeah. is inspired, of course, course, by the great lake walkers 
of, 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 the, of the British uh, literary period. And what did Whitman do? Well, the great American poet would sit by the Brooklyn Bridge and watch life walk by there, too. And so I always wondered, where did this come from? Nobody in my family, nobody. The Italian side didn't do this. The Arabic side didn't do this. So what did you do next? I didn't pursue it. I just went on and did what I did, and I, I just never wondered how I plugged in. I guess I should have, but I didn't. But you did. What was next for you? What, what were next steps? What did you do? Yes, okay. So I think initially I, um, I was not looking for, at least consciously, uh, uh, that sort of connection, but it grew into um, finding people like me. Uh, it, it began as just a general interest of um, my family's history. Uh, I was raised uh, largely by my grandparents, and they kept these family Bibles and uh, photographs and uh, all of these sort of things, and I uh, would look through them. Um, so uh, my my uh, interest in genealogy had already peaked, and as I branched out, I started contacting these family members. It started with my, maybe my grandparents' first cousins. And then I, I would uh, go larger, and uh, I would speak to uh, third and fourth cousins, and then fifth cousins. And um, I eventually added over 30,000 um, individuals to my file. But I met uh, wonderful, wonderful, extraordinary people uh, many, on, on many occasions, and I found that meeting and connecting with those people uh, was the most valuable um, asset in researching uh, my family history. Uh, I found, um, for instance, uh, an uncle who was adopted out of the family, and um, he progressed, uh, even though he had a difficult childhood, and became an engineer, and he traveled the world. And I, I was able to locate him on the 1940 census, and he had never seen a photograph of his father and I was able to show him that. And it was just the expression on his face, it was absolutely great. Um, and that's what I uh, worked towards, um, showing people uh, things about their So family. this wasn't, uh, for you, this wasn't, let me pop on Ancestry.com, yeah. and this is no disrespect to Ancestry.com, but this was a personal quest, not just for identity, not just for meaning, but for story. And in the end, you, I think you kept bumping across, as good, I think really good researchers do, the human stories. Correct. And um, I think researching ancestry is great, but you, you don't need to stop at just, uh, okay, this person was born here and he died at this date. Uh, you need to uh, attempt to understand them. It, it, uh, it's like reviving... Uh, a dead person, to some degree. Uh, my third great-grandmother, for instance, I, I knew nothing about her. No one really knew anything about her until I found uh, what we now know. Uh, uh, she died in 1901 in her 20s, and she had two children, and we were unsure of what happened. And I found in her obituary, um, uh, she died in Sheboygan, and uh, she uh, died of heart failure at 26, or around 26, uh, because her husband had left her and she had to revert to hard manual labor to care for her children. And without um, the steps uh, of uh, researching and uh, trying to figure out uh, these people, we don't have a clear understanding of them or, or an appreciation for them. So um, 
it's it's gaining an appreciation for other people, uh, different people, uh, different backgrounds. I mean, I just, I'm a descendant. I'm a descendant of Quakers, uh, Catholics, Protestants, Huguenots, uh, all sorts of people. Uh, you could have one dangerous and really prolific argument with yourself for about a quarter of a century, Jonathan. This is Lee Habib. We're talking to Jonathan Bucket, searching family history, finding a new future here on Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and we're joined by Jonathan Puckett. We continue our conversation. The article in the Wall Street Journal was Searching Family History, Finding a New Future. It was all about Jonathan's quest and desire to connect with his own ancestry and his own family, but he wasn't doing it by simply going on a computer and paying for it. Um, He was doing something much more urgent and much more meaningful, and that was looking for the actual connections. Tell us, uh, you know, a, a few of the stories that most impacted you, that most surprised you. I spent a lot of weekends just traveling to these uh, relatives' houses. I'd never met them before. I'd, I'd call them on the telephone and tell them how I was related. And uh, we'd, we'd talk for a couple months, and eventually I would go visit them and see them. And some of the people I met are really fascinating. Uh, um, I met this one fellow, his name is Dr. Joseph Todd. I I didn't realize that I had had many people in my family go to college, at least in my immediate family. As I began looking, uh, I found otherwise. But Dr. Todd went to Harvard and is a retired cardiovascular surgeon living uh, out of Cincinnati. And he uh, is a cousin of mine, a double cousin by chance, and we have shared uh, many great conversations, and it's really inspiring to know that someone was able to achieve that in my family, uh, because he grew up in Decatur, Mississippi. He went to junior college at East Central Community College, uh, and then he had this uncle who uh, had operated a trust fund in Yazoo City, Dr. Carl Day, and uh, he was able to uh, attend Harvard. And by the way, as you not only get inspired by this story, you get, a, in a sense, not, if not a mentor and or friend, uh, you just find another really rich relationship in your life, Jonathan. That's true, and I still talk to Dr. Todd. We've spoken, uh, I guess, um, five or six years now, um, and I speak to many of my family members that I've located, and many of the relationships i formed are truly close and endearing. How did, you, how did your friends and family react to the, the, the commitment? Because in the beginning, you had to look a little crazy to your friends. Like, what's, what's Jonathan doing? But as I, would, I, would prom, I would bet, and I'm, I'm a betting guy. I love betting. Um, okay. I would bet that it, the longer you did it, the more people who at the beginning thought you were a little odd started to go, hey, what did you learn? And next thing you know, you were probably telling them stories, and they were no longer critics. They were more than likely great fans. That's true. Well, as far as my family goes, they, my immediate family uh, has always been supportive, and they helped me when I you know, planned when I planned my first reunion. I was in eighth grade, so I, I needed some uh, assistance financially, at least. And um, 
they assisted me. But as far as my school friends and this sort of thing, I, I do. And I, I would speak to them about uh, what I found. Um, <laughs> interesting tidbits of not just my family's history, but uh, local history, state history, uh, the United States history. Because when you study genealogy, at least seriously, you're going to learn about uh, your, uh, your country's history or, you know, the history of the, uh, the, the local people or what yeah. have you. You know, I was taking my little girl through a, a graveyard here in Oxford, Mississippi. It's a beautiful space. William Faulkner is buried there. And, yeah. and so I, I was just, you know, having her look at the tombstones and the family plots, and we noticed that every other family plot had these little, little, tiny, essentially where caskets were. And it just turned out that my little girl made that observation and said, Daddy, what, why are so many little babies buried in, in the cemetery? What happened? Was there a fire? I said, honey, kids used to die. Lots yeah. of kids just died. They died at birth. They died right after they were born. There were diseases. And she was just shocked, stunned. And I came home and I read her some of the letters from my, my great aunts and family members. And routinely in those letters, so-and-so's Child died. Oh, it was so sad. So, I mean, every single family member had a family member who lost a child at a very young age. That's, that's true. And um, I, I have a story that might relate to that. Uh, in doing my research, I located where the home of my third great-grandfather was located. And I knew that he had several infant children and that uh, tradition... Always, uh, as people had always told me that the children were buried behind that house. So <laughs> I, I'm in the middle of nowhere, Newton County, dirt road, and I'm walking through the woods. <laughs> and but 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 I locate where the house was. The base of the kitchen was still standing, and behind that I see this row of stones. And uh, that uh, exact number of stones, uh, number of stone correlates with the uh, number of infants that he had. So. Uh, I think that I located the burial place to his um, infants. But, yeah, and you see a lot of families, uh, particularly uh, agricultural families, um, 19th century, it will have 11 or 12 children. Uh, just because the likelihood of some of those children dying uh, was higher. Yep, higher. And I, and I think that's true. And, and I think in, even in cities in the country, you know, the 19th and early 20th centuries, um, this was just very commonplace, and yeah. and it was something families had to deal with, and it's a great way of teaching history uh, and making it damn personal. And let, so uh, one or two other stories, if you could. <laughs> okay. Have I spoken? Uh, no, I haven't. Uh, I met this fellow. He is really um, a role model of mine and continues to be one. His name is Dr. Harold Graham. He lives in Decatur. He was. Uh, he went to East Central, then he went to USM, and then he uh, he got a master's, and he eventually got a doctorate. But he worked as a superintendent of schools um, in Louisiana for some time, and he worked as a school counselor. And this was uh, during the civil rights period, and he faced a lot of um, oh my goodness, prejudice and uh, all of this. And uh, he he began researching genealogy and uh well we, we connect uh in the early 70s and he he continues to do so um and he, not only does he focus on his family but he focuses uh on the history of newton county families um and 
he presented with me a lot of uh, techniques that I could use, but it also inspired me to pursue um, a higher means of education and to get in contact with these other family members. He provided me uh, countless phone numbers and hours of assistance. So, so another real mentor was developed, and in the end, this really helped you develop into the adult you are now, Jonathan. It sounds like this is an integral part of your development, maybe more important than your actual formal education. <laughs> it may be, and I've I've learned a lot uh, from my own research about um, how society works, about other people, and how to relate to them, and how to how to speak to them. And I continue to learn as much as I can. Yeah, I think in the end, when you're curious and you want to find out what stories are, and you don't have an agenda. You're just going to always learn a lot about yourself because you're going to learn a lot about other people. And other people teach us all the time with the example of their lives, Jonathan. Uh, one last question. How has this changed yep. the way you understand yourself? Well, I see myself now as a much more, uh, well, I mean, I'm a single individual, but I'm comprised of many different backgrounds. So I've gained a respect for uh, diverse cultures uh, just because, well, I'm, yeah, I'm European but I'm also uh, <laughs> uh, Asian a little, uh, which surprised me, and uh, Native American, and uh, all of the I'm, I'm formed of all of these different religions, and you just you get a respect for and an understanding for uh, other members of society, and you learn that the um, you don't you don't research your family history uh, for, for self-satisfaction. You do it for other people. And the, the true value of researching genealogy is to see the smile on the other person's face uh, when you find out something for them or when you uh, show them a picture they've never seen or, or um, even uh, when you um, historically locate documents that are uh, important uh such as uh, I located a diary uh, that someone had written during his tenure in the Mexican War. Uh, things like that that are historically um, important. And well, you know, in the end, it, it is an act of love to do these kinds of things. And it's an act of service. And in the end, sharing these stories with others. Actually, you, you probably did more to bring your family closer than you could have ever imagined, Jonathan. I, I can only uh, 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 surmise that... That was a byproduct of your work. Yeah. Oh, I mean, at the family reunions I planned, and um, there were people, my first cousins, uh, that I spoke to um, uh, separately, but they had never seen, they hadn't seen each other um, in 30, 40 years, and they uh, now, I assume, speak with with each other frequently, and uh, there's more, there's a better connection among my family members. Well, Jonathan, thanks for all you did and have done. Searching Family History, Finding a New Future was the story in the Wall Street Journal. Genealogist, almost a master genealogist, Jonathan Puckett, who at a very young age just needed to find answers to his own family's life that couldn't be answered by anyone else but him and his curiosity and his quest to discover the truth about his own life. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and for the next half hour, we're going to do something really important. We're going to be talking about the top ten sodas in the world with a special report from our producer, Jesse. But first, to set the stage and to illustrate our love for soda pop on this show, we're going to go back and listen to an off-the-air rant that took place here in the studio. I was telling the team about a restaurateur I knew back in the day who was a perfectionist when it came to the ice he would serve in his drinks to customers. The conversation then spilled over into a passionate discussion of my personal love for Coca-Cola. Let's take a listen. Coke had to be cold before it was poured under the ice. Because warm Coke mm. on ice tastes different. And then the ice changes the kind of the Coke. And then the kind of Coke, he was one of the first people to get Mexican Coke. He was a freak about it. Because Mexican Coke is, as everybody knows, superior to American yeah. Coke. Yeah. Oh, no, no comparison. They, they have, what, like 400 different recipes, and they're all catering to different regions of the, different of the region. world. And there's one particular, the part where a, ba- a Baja's Mexican Coke is like the original Coke. Yeah. It was, it's just more expensive because it's the real real sugar. It's not the, the stuff, the refined. It's sugar, sugar. Sugar cane. Yeah, yeah. sugar cane. From Better the cane. than McDonald's? No, McDonald's is the best ever. Okay. McDonald's has a special recipe for Coke. Yeah. And, and some of them said, for, screw it, just give us the mass stuff in a vat. So you'll go to some McDonald's, especially ones where the Coke's given by the people behind. And then they have a special mix, and they have a, a special a, a extra amount of syrup that they put in. They put in more syrup. Secret Coke. Oh, no. And I literally, there are <laughs> hundreds of thousands of people who literally know the McDonald's that serve the special McDonald's soda. And it's not every McDonald's because it costs more. It's actually quite a bit more. It's like three or four cents a drink, which sounds yeah. like nothing. Mm-hmm. But Add in the overall up. mix of all that soda, they'll go screw it. The damn customers don't know. There was one McDonald's in, in Baltimore where I stopped going when they changed it. Mm. <laughs> and I used to like drive 20 minutes. And I don't think they ever figured it out. Yeah, no, it, you know. I know, it's a little sad, isn't it? How did you find out that you just tasted the change? Oh, yeah, I tasted it. I, I also knew. I mean, I would always look. Them? I look, yeah. I didn't have, oh, I could taste it. I don't need to ask. <laughs> and with you, it's self-serve. It's not that. Because once you go to self-serve, then they just go to the traditional mixes. So it had to come from the back. Okay. And there's a couple of other restaurants that did that deal with McDonald's. Chick-fil-A did it for the longest time. And then I don't know what happened. I don't really? know if they paid. Yeah, because there just became too many people who hadn't been. Here, here's what it came from. The people who ever had an original Coke from the soda fountain, from the yeah. ice cream parlor, yeah. knew that you could say to the man with the hat, and especially if you had the seltzer really cold, you'd say, give me an extra shot of the syrup. And he would just go, this, this. And I mean, you'd be flying for the whole day. And it just tasted freaking great. But, you know, each jolt of the syrup. You know, he's, you know, if it was 12 cents for the Coke, he'd say, you know, 15 right. or whatever. It's like extra hot fudge on your hot fudge at the basket. It's like lobby. an extra shot in your coffee. It's like an extra shot of whatever. Absolutely. <laughs> and there you have it. We are passionate about all things here at Our American Stories. And with that, we now go to our executive producer, Jesse Edwards, with his report on the top 10 sodas in the world. There's finally an official and seemingly unbiased ranking of sodas, or soda pop, or pop, depending on what part of the country you're in. And the results might surprise you. The top dog should be obvious, but its longtime rival is strangely much lower on the list than expected. Bear in mind, this is as legitimate as possible. We didn't poll a handful of people waiting for the subway. It's a poll that just closed on Ranker.com, and over 185,000 people voted. It's pretty hard to dispute these statistics. Here's a look at the top ten, starting with the tenth position and working our way to the coveted spot of number one. 
At number 10 is Pepsi Cola. Cooking Pepsi on the same thing. Wake up, people. We always assumed that Pepsi was almost as popular as Coke, but according to this poll, it's not even in the same ballpark. Pepsi was first named Brad's Drink in New Bern, North Carolina in 1893 by Caleb Bradham, who made it at his drugstore where the drink was sold. It was renamed Pepsi-Cola in 1898 after the root of the word dyspepsia and the cola nuts used in the recipe. The original recipe also included sugar and vanilla. Bradham sought to create a fountain drink that was appealing and would aid in digestion and boost energy. In 1903, Bradham moved the bottling of Pepsi-Cola from his drugstore to a rented warehouse. That year, he sold 7,968 gallons of syrup. The next year, Pepsi was sold in six-ounce bottles, and sales increased to 19,848 gallons. In 1931, at the depth of the Great Depression, the Pepsi-Cola company entered bankruptcy, in large part due to financial losses incurred by speculating on the wildly fluctuating sugar prices as a result of World War I. On three separate occasions between 1922 and 1933, the Coca-Cola Company was offered the opportunity to purchase the Pepsi-Cola Company, and it declined on each occasion. Here's an old Pepsi commercial from the time when the drink only cost one nickel. Pepsi-Cola hits the spot. Twelve full ounces, that's a lot. Twice as much for a nickel, too. Pepsi-Cola is the drink for you. Thirsty people everywhere prefer ice-cold Pepsi-Cola. And because it's light, it refreshes without filling. Charlie, be sociable. I am, Kay. Pepsi is a favorite of thirsty people from Maine to Hawaii, from Alaska to Florida. Charlie. It's perfect for parties or picnics. So serve Pepsi to your guests. That's helpful. But this is the sociable part. Keep plenty of Pepsi ice cold and ready. Remember, it goes fast because everybody likes Pepsi. Singing still sounds more inviting. At number nine of the world's most popular soda pop drinks, Canada Dry Ginger Ale. It's a brand of soft drinks owned since 2008 by the Texas-based Dr. Pepper Snapple Group. For over a century, Canada Dry has been known for its ginger ale, though the company also manufactures a number of other soft drinks and mixers. Although Canada Dry originated in Canada, it's now produced in many countries, including Mexico, Colombia, the Middle East, Europe, and Japan. The dry in the brand's name refers to it not being very sweet, as in a dry wine. Here's an early Canada Dry ginger ale commercial from the 1960s. Somebody saw the shot, and she's got a cold drink for you. Canada Dry ginger ale. One gulp is for thirst, the other gulps are for kicks. Come in on a wave and end up at a party. It's going to be a good evening. Canada Dry Ginger Ale. One gulp is for thirst, the other gulps are for kicks. In at number eight of the most popular sodas in the world is Cherry Coke. Long before its official introduction in 1985, many diners and drugstore soda fountains dispensed an unofficial version of Cherry Coke by adding cherry-flavored syrup to the Coca-Cola mix. Coca-Cola tested Cherry Coke on an audience in 1982 at the World's Fair. It then entered mainstream production during the summer of 1985. Cherry Coke, which by 2007 had been renamed Coca-Cola Cherry in the U.S. and some other countries, was the third variation of Coca-Cola at the time, the others being Coca-Cola Classic and Diet Coke and the first flavored coke listen to this terribly 80s cherry coke commercial Ooh, 
In at number seven is Orange Crush. In 1911, Clayton J. Howell, president and founder of the Orange Crush Company, partnered with Neil C. Ward and incorporated the company. Ward made the recipe for Orange Crush. Howell was not new to the soft drink business, having earlier introduced Howell's orange juice julep. Soft drinks of the time often carried the surname of the inventor along with the product name. Howell sold the rights to his name in conjunction with his first brand. Therefore, Ward was given the honors. Crush was first premiered as Ward's Orange Crush. And originally, Orange Crush included orange pulp in the bottles, giving it a fresh, squeezed illusion, even though the pulp was added rather than remaining from squeezed oranges. Pulp has not been in the bottles for decades. The band R.E.M. even titled one of their popular songs after the fizzy drink, though I'm not entirely sure of the point these lyrics are trying to make. This is Our American Stories and more on the top 10 sodas in the world and more with Jesse's report. American stories, and when we left off, our producer Jesse was ripping through the top 10 sodas in the world according to a poll of over 180,000 people. We now return to this special report. In at number six of the most popular sodas on the planet is Seven Up. When someone brings up soda rivalries, many people's minds immediately head towards Coke and Pepsi. But the rivalry between Sprite and 7-Up is pretty good, too. 7-Up was created by Charles Leeper Grigg, who launched his St. Louis-based company, the Howdy Corporation, in 1920. Grigg came up with the formula for a lemon-lime soft drink in 1929. The product, originally named Bib Label Lithiated Lemon Lime Soda, oof, that's a tongue twister, was launched two weeks before the Wall Street crash of 1929. It contained lithium citrate, a mood-stabilizing drug, until 1948. It was one of a number of medicine products popular in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Its name was later shortened to 7-Up Lithiated Lemon Soda before being further shortened to just 7-Up by 1936. Westinghouse bought up 7-Up in 1969 and sold it in 1978 to Philip Morris, who then, in 1986, sold it to a group led by the investment firm Hicks & Haas. 7-Up merged with Dr. Pepper in 1988. Cadbury Schweppes bought the combined company in 1995. The Dr. Pepper Snapple Group was spun off from Cadbury Schweppes in 2008. Originally branded as the Uncola, 7-Up made some pretty funny commercials back in the 1980s. Her first Uncola, the moment in every girl's life when she leaves her childhood of one cola after another cola behind and begins a lifetime of the fresh, clean taste of 7-Up, a lifetime of security in the knowledge that the Uncola is never too sweet that the Uncola has everything a cola's got and more besides. The Uncola is forever. 
In at number five of the world's most popular soda pop drinks is A&W Root Beer. Root Beer, along with sarsaparilla, birch beer, and cream soda, is one of the most old-timey sodas available. Sipping it brings drinkers back to simpler times. Plus, it's just begging to be used to make a root beer float. On June 20th, 1919, Roy W. Allen opened a roadside root beer stand in Lodi, California, using a formula he purchased from a pharmacist. He soon opened stands in Stockton, California, and five stands in nearby Sacramento, home of the country's first drive-in featuring Trey Boys for curbside service. In 1920, Allen became partners with Frank Wright, and the two combined their initials, calling their product A&W Root Beer. Here's a funny A&W Root Beer commercial from a few years back where a guy is at a job interview getting the name of his potential new boss completely wrong. Mr. Dumbass... I can bring a lot to dumbass and dumbass. I'm a go-getter. Dumbass material all the way. So, am I your man, Mr. Dumbass? The name is Dumas. That's pretty thick-headed. But nothing compared to the rich, thick, frosty mug taste of an A&W root beer. With A&W, it's good to be thick-headed. What a dumbass. At number four for the most popular soda drinks in the world is Mountain Dew. Mm. Tennessee bottlers Barney and Alan Hartman developed Mountain Dew as a mixer in the 1940s. Soft drinks were regional in the 1930s, and the Hartmans had difficulty in Knoxville obtaining their preferred soda to mix with liquor, preferably whiskey, so the two men developed their own. Originally a 19th century generic term for whiskey, especially Highland Scotch whiskey, the name was trademarked for the soft drink in 1948. The Tip Corporation of Marion, Virginia bought the rights to Mountain Dew, revising the flavor and launching it in 1961. In 1964, PepsiCo purchased the Tip Corporation and thus acquired the rights to Mountain Dew. Here's the very first Mountain Dew TV commercial from 1966 that promises the drink will tickle your innards. Beautiful Sal was a stone-hearted gal, refusing to bill or to coo. But Clem was right smart, he appealed to her heart with that gal getting good old Mountain View. Yahoo! Mountain View! Mountain Dew will tickle your innards, cause there's a bang in every bottle. At the county turkey shoot, cause Luke warn't worth a hoot. He was hopeless till he finally took the cue. Yahoo! Mountain Dew! Now he shoots off the cup, gets more than enough after nipping at that good old Mountain Dew. Sure is shooting, there's a bang in every bottle of our delicious soft drink, Mountain Dew. It'll tickle your innards. And at number three of the best sodas in the entire world is Sprite. The winner of the Lemon Lime Soda War, Sprite is the go-to citrus beverage for most people. It's a colorless, caffeine-free, lemon-lime flavored soft drink created by the Coca-Cola Company. It was first developed in West Germany in 1959 and was introduced in the United States as a competitor to 7-Up. Over the years, Sprite has had 17 variations worldwide, including Sprite Zero, Sprite Remix, Blast, Ice, Duo, Super Lemon, Lemon Lime Herb, Recharge, 3G, Cranberry, Six Mix, and Sprite Tropical. Sprite can also help relieve stomach pains such as those caused by gassy buildup. <laughs> 
Carbonated beverages such as Sprite can cause you to burp and expel some of the gas, thus relieving you of your stomach pain. You're someone special, you're striving for more. Trying to do things better than before. You're trying harder, you're reaching so tall. You're drinking Sprite and you're giving it your all. You found more in Sprite. You found lime and you found more in you. At number two, for the most popular soda pops in the universe, is the great and grand Dr. Pepper. One of my personal favorites. The U.S. Patent Office recognizes December 1st, 1885 as the first time Dr. Pepper was served. It was introduced nationally in the United States at the 1904 Louisiana Purchase Exposition as a new kind of soda pop made with 23 flavors. Its introduction in 1885 preceded the introduction of Coca-Cola by one year. It was formulated by Brooklyn-born pharmacist Charles Alderton in Morrison's Old Corner Drugstore in Waco, Texas. To test his new drink, he first offered it to store owner Wade Morrison, who also found it to his liking. Alderton gave the formula to Morrison, who named it Dr. Pepper. As with Coca-Cola, the formula for Dr. Pepper is a trade secret, and allegedly the recipe is kept as two halves in safe deposit boxes in two separate Dallas banks. A persistent rumor since the 1930s is that the drink contains prune juice, but the official Dr. Pepper frequently asked questions refutes this claim. A woman by the name of Donna Lauren was the one and only Dr. Pepper girl from 1963 to 68. She was signed to a long-term contract with the soft drink company to sing all television and radio commercials, do all magazine and billboard advertising, representing them in every capacity, sometimes sharing the spotlight with American Bandstand's Dick Clark. Here she is in this vintage Dr. Pepper TV commercial from 1964. Hi, I'm Donna Lauren. Many words can describe Dr. Pepper. Here's how our caveman friends do it. Now that you all have a bottle of Dr. Pepper, I want you to take a taste and then give me your reaction in one word. Remember now, one word. Labor. Lift. Light. Lively. Zonk. The soft drink with zonk? Well, that's one way to praise Dr. Pepper. Here's mine. Good times begin with Dr. Pepper. Distinctively different, Dr. Pepper. Not a cola or a root beer, a light and lively taste that you cheer. The lift is great, the flavor fine, it's Dr. Pepper time. And who could forget this scene from Forrest Gump when Forrest meets President Kennedy at the White House? I must have drank me about 15 Dr. Peppers. Congratulations. How do you feel? I gotta pay. <laughs> I believe he said he had to go pee. And here it is. The number one spot. The big kahuna. The top place in the universe. The best soda in the galaxy. is Coca-Cola. Looks like we made it. Big surprise. The winner and champion still. Originally intended as a medicine, it was invented in the late 19th century by John Pemberton and was bought out by businessman Asia Griggs Candler, whose marketing tactics led Coca-Cola to its dominance of the world soft drink market throughout the 20th century. 
The drink's name refers to two of its original ingredients, which were cola nuts, the source of caffeine, and coca leaves. The current formula of Coca-Cola remains a trade secret, although a variety of reported recipes and experimental recreations have been published. The Coca-Cola company produces concentrate, which is then sold to licensed Coca-Cola bottlers throughout the world. The bottlers, who hold exclusive territory contracts with the company, produce the finished product in cans and bottles from the concentrate in combination with filtered water and sweeteners. The bottlers then sell, distribute, and merchandise Coca-Cola to retail stores, restaurants, and vending machines throughout the world. Here's a vintage Coca-Cola. Cola TV ad from the early 1950s. There are times every day as you work or you play when a pause would be welcome to you. And it's then that you find the bright thought in your mind that only a Coke will do. 50 million times a day at home, at work, or on the way. There's nothing like a Coca-Cola, nothing like a Coke. Nothing. And that's our look at the top 10 sodas in the world, according to a poll of over 185,000 people. From Pepsi at number 10 all the way to the top spot at number 1, the original Coca-Cola is the reigning champion. This is Our American Stories. I'm Jesse Edwards.